Let's take our Bibles this evening to the book of Esther, the book of Esther chapter 7. Let's turn in our copies of the Word of God to Esther chapter 7 this evening, and we pick up our study looking at, I want to say, I almost said the Gospel of Esther, but it is not the Gospel of Esther. I'm used to saying the Gospel of Matthew, but Esther chapter 7. We want to take a moment to read the all 10 verses of this chapter to frame it and get it into our hearts and minds so we have a working understanding of the passage here this evening. So join me in Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7 verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Notice how descriptive she is. In case he missed number one, she gives number two. And in case he gives, misses number two, he, she gives number three, each one giving a fuller description of her plot. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to the Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary... And the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, uh, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman. That's alliteration for you. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Irony. Then the king's wrath subsided. Well, this is the word of God. As we look at this Esther chapter 7, it's a reminder to us that not only in the story of Esther, but life is full of twists and turns. The Word of God tells us that we do not know what a day may bring forth. What, what happens today and then what happens tomorrow may be two otherworldly, entirely different circumstances. We are not to presume. We are not to be full of pride. We are not to stand arrogantly. We are to walk humbly with our God. But if we know anything, we know that we do not know what a day will bring forth. In fact, it's a reminder of a funny instance in history. Sir Robert Watson 
Watt. Sir Robert Watson Watt, who was a Scottish man. He was born in 1892. As a matter of fact, he was the pioneer in radar technology during World War II, and it wound up being an absolute game changer uh, for the British. He would later move to Canada, but Sir Winston Churchill credited Sir Robert Watson Watt with saving Britain from the German warplanes. For his efforts and for his labor, he was awarded the designation of Sir, he was knighted Sir Robert Watson Watt. It's a tongue twister for you. He was knighted for his labor and contribution. In fact, the London newspapers had this headline, The Man Who Saved an Entire Nation. But interestingly enough, Sir Robert Watson Watt, the man who saved an entire nation, the nation of Britain, was traveling down the road one day in Canada, and he was pulled over by a trooper. In fact, the very technology that is used in national defense to save nations, to help weather meteorologists determine the weather, a state trooper was using, or whatever they call them in Canada, and clocked him as speeding against the speed zone, the speed limit. And so he was taken aback that his own technology uh, pulled him over. In fact, I believe he was given a fine for $12.50. Oh, to have those fines even today for speeding tickets. Watt is known to have said this. He said, had I known that you, to the state trooper or whatever he was, the policeman, had I known that you would use my technology in this way, I never would have invented it. Really? <laughs> what an emotional, off-the-cuff response. But the bottom line is this. There's a principle in the story of history, and many throughout history, that Sir Robert Watson Watt was a victim of his own Invention. In fact, he'd go on to write this nifty little poem. He said this, A rough pity, Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot, and thus with others that I can mention, a victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly. But now, by some ironic twist, it spots the speeding motorist and bites, no doubt, with legal wit, the hen that once created it. Notice that little phrasing there that we saw, that he is a victim of his own invention. Well, we come now tonight to Esther chapter 7, and, and our sermon is entitled this, Haman's Harvest. Haman's Harvest. And there's a number of angles on what we're going to be looking at tonight, sowing and reaping being the recipient of something that we have constructed, what man at times means for hurt or the destruction of other individuals comes back to bite them in full force. They are the victim of their own manipulations or uh, strivings or those types of things. As we come to Esther chapter 7, we have echoes of this very same similarity. Last time together in God's Word in this passage in Esther chapter 6, we saw Haman humiliated coming before the king, and the king asked him a question. The king sought counsel and a consultation from Haman, and he asked him how he should reward a man. What would it be like? What would be a proper reward for a man worthy of it? A man that was worthy of being recognized. And so Haman waxed eloquent, gave a detailed description, and immediately Haman was instructed to do just that very thing, but not for him, but for Mordecai. 
Haman was humiliated, being forced to parade Mordecai, the very man that he despised, around the city, announcing to all who would see, this is the man who the king delights to honor. Then, when we left him, he was at home talking with his wife and his friends, his servants, his advisors, and he was complaining to them. And in the midst of his complaining, he was given a prophetic warning by his counsel that he must be careful. In fact, look with me back, Esther chapter 6, verse 12. After Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, key phrasing there that we will come back to, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. One question is, where was this council on the front end? <laughs> what kind of counselors are these? They're not wrong, though. While they were still talking with him, this is where we left off, a sudden interruption. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This is now, we're moving into the second banquet. So moving into chapter 7, we see first off at the very beginning of the chapter the request of the king. Notice verse 1, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request up to half of the kingdom? It shall be done. Notice the inspired narrator here gives us Esther's title. Four times in so many verses we see Esther's name mentioned. Three of those times the title Queen Esther. If we know anything about Esther up until this point, we know that she's a beautiful woman. But we need to note here that she's more than just a pretty face. Her actions of late, moving from chapter end of chapter 4, 5, 6, and now beginning into chapter 7, we're beginning to see that she is walking carefully, wisely, prayerfully, and with much fasting. And she is receiving the wisdom of the Lord. She is being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. At the beginning of chapter 5, we saw that she put on her royal robes to see the king. She has walked a tightrope. She's walked carefully and Quite frankly, Esther has been a step ahead of everyone in our story. As a matter of fact, she is the fulfillment of what Proverbs describes in Proverbs 25:15. It says this, By long forbearance or patience, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. This is Esther fulfilling that very proverb. By long forbearance or patience, a ruler, Xerxes, who's volatile, hostile, um, unpredictable, emotional, a yes man, is being tamed. And she requests a second feast, and in so doing, she has him on the record multiple times in public asking this question, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Esther, what do you want? I will give you whatever you ask. In her wisdom, being led of the Lord as she delays her revelation and as she delays her request, we as the audience read, the suspense is building, but it is building for the king as well. It's a reminder to us that we should not just spill all that we know 
as we know it. We need to walk in wisdom. For example, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 7, there is a time for everything, isn't there? A time, ultimately, Solomon says, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Oh, man, we need that wisdom, don't we? You and I, we deal with so many uh, things in our, in our business life and our relational lives, and we're just speaking practically here, just speaking, you know, Lord, where, what, where, how, when, that type of thing. There is a time to keep silence. I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes verbally we're like Peter with his dagger, walking around, slashing, um, meaning good, but we need to be careful. Now, so much more we could say there. The church is far too silent today. Don't, don't keep going that direction. We get that we need to speak up more and, and share the gospel more. We understand that. But we're speaking practically here in matters of just practical wisdom, timing, proper conversations, maybe with a boss, maybe with a fellow co-worker, that type of thing, a, a proposal. And we're praying about it. We're asking the Lord to, to lead us in his truth and his timing and his, and his way. As we saw in Proverbs just a moment ago, a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. What we find here in the book of Esther, her silence to his request, his multiple requests, builds to the moment of anticipation so that when she speaks, we're all listening. When Esther speaks, there's a sense of anticipation. But notice in verse 3, as she begins to speak, how she speaks. There's a deference. There's a respect. There's a humility that, quite frankly, captivates the king. We see Esther's petition there in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king. You have. You have. Multiple times. What do you want? We'll give you half, half the kingdom. If I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Now, let's just hit pause here briefly. This is the moment that Esther has been destined for. This is the very moment that God has raised up Esther for the salvation and preservation for his people. Now, we know what Xerxes does not know. We know that Esther is a Jew. Xerxes doesn't know that. Haman doesn't know that. So imagine hearing this if you're Xerxes. Save you? Save your people? Of course. <laughs> what are we even talking about here? If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, would you spare my life? You, absolutely. What are you talking about? Would you spare my life from being taken from me at my petition and my people at my request? Let's just hit pause and let this be lost on us. This is Esther responding in full force to Mordecai's call for her to stand in the gap for her people. If you remember chapter 4, verse 13, Mordecai told Esther, Do not think in your heart, Esther, that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, as God has, and I'm, this is my input here, as God has always done. Now, back to inspired scripture. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, this is that time. And Esther begins to make her request known, her petition known to the king there in verse 3. Now, back to our text, verse 4. She says, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate 
for the king's laws. Imagine, if you will, we're the little spider on the wall watching the whole scene unfold uh, before us. Imagine what Haman's face looks like at this moment. The, the austere warning that he received from his wife and his counselors just before he was, was brought here. Imagine what Haman is thinking as he begins to see all of this warning that was given to him played out before his very eyes. As it begins to dawn on him that his being completely consumed with eradicating not only the Jews, but particularly wiping out Mordecai and hearing Esther say that we have been sold, or had we been, been sold, and ultimately our lives being taken. What we know is what Haman doesn't. Haman is discovering in real time, Haman is discovering that Esther is a Jew. Esther is the queen the queen married to Xerxes, but she is also the cousin of the man, Mordecai, that he hates. And the queen is talking to the king. It's in my imagination, I was just sitting there thinking, oh, to see Haman's life flashing before his eyes. Was he squirming? Was he sweating? What was, what was happening here? And yet, as we look at Esther's request and her petition, we must take note that she has to go about this very shrewdly. Very wisely. And you say, well, why do you say that, Legrand? Well, it's not exactly as if Xerxes is a moral man. As if appealing to his sense of right and wrong is really going to swing the, the difference here. Here she must be careful in how she unveils her request to the king. And ultimately the way she's unveiling this request is not to his sense of moral justice because Xerxes has none. He's the most, one of the most corrupt kings, history tells us, that, is, that has ever lived. But here she goes, if my people are destroyed, if my people are wiped out, then I am destroyed. I am wiped out. And I am, as you said, your queen. Here she appeals to his, his heart. Then we see verse 5, the king fully realizing what's been done up until this point, And we see the exposing, the revealing of Haman. Verse 5 says this, So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Here again is Esther's moment, verse 6. And Esther said, The adversary, the enemy, is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Notice that phrasing. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is a banquet of three. Very quickly, Haman is seeing himself on the margins. Here, Esther is quickly being identified as the queen of the king. I know this is Captain Obvious, but the, the way the sentence structure is here is he's realizing, I'm odd man out. I have been identified, and now I'm being indicted. So Haman, the text tells us, was terrified before the king and the queen. One question we can ask ourselves is this. Why was Haman so blindsided? This is yet just another installment of Haman's walking in an in a idiotic way, missing things that are very obvious, the wisdom that he so desperately needed. He can't see because he cannot see past his own nose. Just as he was blind when the king asked him how he should honor a particular man and he could not fathom or imagine that there would be anyone else that the king would want to honor outside of him. 
Haman is also intoxicated that he is a part of this banquet of three. Haman has no idea why on earth, outside of his greatness, Esther would invite him. He thinks he's important. He thinks he's special. No doubt he sees himself as the heir apparent to the throne. When in reality, he is here to be indicted for his crimes against the Jewish people. So now he finds there's a very important reason he is here, so that he may be exposed, so that he may be found out. You know, the Bible says that, doesn't it? That our sins will find us out. We must walk carefully. We must walk humbly, not in arrogance, not in pride. Be sure your sin will find you out. Notice now with me verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. Notice this phrase, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Here we have two responses. We have the king's response to Esther's indictment, her, her revelation, her expose. We have the king's response, and we have Haman's response. And the king's response is unusual. Notice what an odd response. The king, upon hearing what she has to say, the text tells us he arose from the banquet of wine and he went out into the garden. For the umpteenth time, multiple times here in just chapter 7, it is underscored for us the role that alcohol or wine has played in this story. And I'll just brief, briefly touch upon it. The Holy Spirit definitely underscores for us even in a way that has weighted meeting here in verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from his... Now, the Holy Spirit has all words in his economy. But here, he wants us to know from his banquet of wine. There is a weighted tension here in the text. Notice what he says. For the evil that he saw was determined... Excuse me, that was Haman's response there. He went out into the palace garden. This is an odd response. And just in meditating upon the text, I was asking myself this question... Why did the king go out into the garden? Well, also, for the umpteenth time, the king finds himself between a rock and a hard place. This king lacks wisdom. This king desperately needs the wisdom that only God can give, and yet this king continually sabotages himself by his very clear uh, addiction to alcohol. No doubt the discernment that he has needed, the wisdom that he has needed, Proverbs 31, just look at the reference, make a correlation. As Lemuel's mom says, kings, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking from off the top of my head, need that wisdom and clarity are not given to wine in this way. Wise kings, you could say. Well, here Xerxes evidently is, and there's a weighted pregnancy to the text here that says, he arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into his palace garden. It's as if he has to leave the scene to fully meditate on the fact that he says, when he puts it all, all together, the people that Haman got me to agree to execute, annihilate, and to kill, as Esther has just described, I have also had a role in playing. Why do I find myself, we're imagining here in the text, why do I find myself here again and again and again? Yes, I'm reading into the text a little bit. I understand that. There's a, there's a, there's a heavy denseness uh, there's a tenseness to the text. The king immediately leaves the scene. It's almost as if he's analyzing the conundrum that he is under, knowing he is just as guilty in signing on to Haman's plan and signing it into law. 
knowing that what is written into the law is done, what's written according to the king's mandate is something that cannot be reversed, it cannot be changed. So first off, we see the king's response. Secondly, we see Haman's response. Notice, but Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life. He knows how unstable Xerxes is, his pattern of off with their heads. He sees the look in Xerxes' face, for he saw, the text tells us, that evil was determined against him by the king. So at this point, I want us just to remember the literary use of what is called irony. Irony. Notice the text goes on to describe for us that when the king comes back in, he is literally falling on the couch. He is falling before Queen Esther. And this is the ironic use of this verb, this word. Remember, what was it at the beginning that got Haman so ticked off to begin with? At his exaltation, at his promotion, everyone was fawning before him, falling before him except for, for one. That was Mordecai. Mordecai would not fall before him. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 13, his wife Zeresh said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Well, what is he doing now? Here we find him falling before Esther, begging for his life. Seeking salvation, seeking mercy from the only one who could give it. Now, remember, the first response is Xerxes leaving the scene, knowing his conundrum, knowing the law is in effect and in place, knowing that the first person he would normally turn to is Haman, but Haman is the guilty one. Haman is the traitor. It's almost as if the king has no one to turn to, and he's racking his brain, he's scratching his head, and says, what do I do? How do I get out of this? Verse 8, it's upon re-entering that it seems as if he finds his answer. Verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place, again, this emphasis of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in this house? Now that sounds good, but don't don't be fooled by the false bravado. This is the out, the way I read it is is correct. This is the out, in a sense, the king has been looking for. He knows that Haman's not literally assaulting his wife. This is the very excuse. This is exactly what the king needs. And so he responds to this outward display. Will he also assault the queen while I am in this house? And the implication here is, take him out. So we see Haman is identified. Haman is indicted. Haman is now punished. Verse 8, and as the word left the king's mouth, notice this phrasing, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, and he goes on to describe what comes next as far as the hanging. Notice that phrase, they covered Haman's face. What is this about? Of course, in the ancient world, you've seen people who were being taken to the gallows. What's over their head? Some type of hood? some type of covering. Well, this is exactly what is taking place. This is the death sentence. The implication is clear. As they take him out, they cover his face. He's being taken to be executed. But the form of execution has not yet been determined. At least it's not given to us here in the book. Interestingly enough, Job chapter 5, verse 13 says it like this. 
in multiple ways. It's almost as if Job 5.13 is a literal commentary on Haman here. It's not, but in one, some ways it is. Notice here, in Job 5.13, the Bible says this, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. You ever heard the phrase, some people are too wise for their own good, such as Haman. He catches the wise, the Lord, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them, Haman. But notice here, they meet, verse 14, Job 5, they meet with darkness in the daytime, and they grope at noontime as in the light. What is that describing? The assumption here is that their heads are being covered as they are taken to execution. Here we see Haman having his head covered. He meets with darkness. The counsel of his cunning has now come quickly upon him. He meets with darkness in the daytime, and he is groping, being led out of the place at noontime as in the night. By the way, that passage goes on to describe, fittingly, Mordecai, but he saves, back in Job 5, but he saves the needy from the sword and from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. Well, here we see Haman literally fulfilling as an antitype of the Messiah, the way so many Old Testament types of prophecies fulfill the coming Messiah. Here, Haman fulfills so many passages and verses of Scripture in God's Word that are warnings to those who would scheme, those who would plan maliciousness and murder and crimes against others, that they will reap what they sow. And we'll look more about that in just a moment in our application. But here in our text, we see in verse 9, he reaps the harvest. Haman reaps the harvest that he has sown. And now his punishment becomes more defined. Up until this point, he is simply exposed for his scheming against the Jewish people. But there is still more that the king does not know. Notice here, verse 9, Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, it's almost as if they're sitting there at the banquet and there's a, there's a big bay window that is present. It's almost, Harbona says, Look, king, you see the gallows far off in the distance? And if the gallows are as big and as majestic as we believe them to be, the gallows, he says, look, the gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman has made. Now, ding, 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 this is news to the king. For Mordecai, the man who spoke good on the king's behalf, the man whose words saved your life, behold, that gallows is standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, well, then hang him on it. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. The way this is framed is so important. The way this is structured, for Mordecai whose words, for Mordecai who saved the king. It's at this moment that Harbona becomes a friend to Mordecai and to Esther, it's almost as if Harbona is saying, King, you think his actions against the queen and her people are bad. What about the man who, who saved you from being executed? Mordecai, the man who saved you from being assassinated. Haman even has designs to execute him just as soon as possible. We see there in verse 9 the king's decree to simply go and to hang Haman on the very gallows that he made for someone else. Well, verse 7 rushes to the top in a climax that we've been waiting for for a while now. Haman receives the justice that is due to him. 
And as we look at some points of application here this evening, I want to say this as a reminder to God's people. Remember that the delay of justice is not the denial of justice. Another way of saying it is that it, all throughout theology and Christian history, I can't even cite the source where I read it, but it's in my memory, is that the wheels of God's justice grind surely and slowly. Have you ever heard that? The wheels of God's justice grind surely and slowly. But the delay of justice is not the denial of justice. Now, that's hard, isn't it? Here we see retribution. We see vindication. We see salvation being brought to bear. But there has been so much fasting and praying and anxiety that has happened all the way up until this point. And I think one question we can ask or that God's people regularly ask is why? You can say it like this. Why does God do what he does? Why does God allow what he allows? And why does God work in the ways he works? And friends, it's there in that darkness of sanctification at times um, that we just have to trust our shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Bring Psalm 23 into bear to know that just because he has not brought justice yet does not mean he will never or won't bring justice to bear. So number one, the delay of justice is not the denial of justice. Secondly, I want us to consider the, the sermon title, Haman's Harvest. And it's an important lesson for every single one of us here that I think we often forget. And what is that lesson, LeGrand? It's this. We reap what we sow. That can work either to righteousness, as Galatians chapter 5 gives great detail. But as we'll give attention here, it can work towards punishment. It can work towards the flesh reaping corruption. It can work towards receiving exactly what is due us in our malicious scheming. In fact, you could say it like this. Haman's life song was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. As Haman has been tooting his own horn all throughout the book to this point, he's been celebrating all that is his. He's been celebrating what is really what God has given. Job said, as we've already referenced Job chapter 5, Job in his own life acknowledged the blessing of the Lord. He said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, it's all of him if he so pleases to bless or to then take away. But I, I worship the God who gives, not what he gives. Well, here Haman has lived his whole life tooting his own horn. And in reality, as one author puts it, he's been playing the taps to his own funeral. Here we can see him being led to the gallows with a hood over his head. And Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, is his life's song. But there is so much truth as we look at his profile. In the same way Sir Robert Watson Watt, having his own invention used against him humorously there, here we see Haman is killed by the very scheming and the work of his own hands. And I think it's important for us to take a moment to walk through a number of scriptures to show that this is not lost on the Bible. This is not lost in the mind of God. In fact, there is much emphasis that points to this and that warns us and also comforts us if we are the recipients of this type of thing. For, for example, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God gave the, the promise to Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that is a foundational principle promise that we see fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ as we celebrate uh, Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. But that is such a profound covenant promise that is given. 
particularly the phrase, and I will curse him who curses you, your people. Psalm 7, verse 14, the psalmist says this, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble, and he brings forth falsehood. Notice here, the wicked, verse 15 of Psalm 7, he made a pit and he dug it out, and the wicked has fallen into the ditch which he made. You ever heard that phrase given? They have fallen into the, that's, a, that's an aphorism, that's a cultural colloquialism, that's something that, that we see how the, the, the Bible is used, or at least it used to be, in everyday vernacular that people didn't even realize. They have fallen into the ditch that they have dug. They have fallen to the ditch which they made. His trouble, verse 16, shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. What did Jesus say? Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. So, there's, these are little principles that are there, but the idea is, is men will reap what they sow. Psalm 9, verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. The nations here, thinking on a macro scale, in the net which they have hidden. Their own foot is called. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared by the work of his own hands. Proverbs 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone will have it rolled back on him. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, I've referenced it already. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Here we see Haman is one of many biblical examples in history, in the biblical record, of reaping what he has sown. What are some other ones? Maybe in your mind's eye, the Holy Spirit would bring some to bear. In my thinking, I thought of a couple others. Pharaoh had the Jewish baby boys drowned. But what was Pharaoh's end? God drowned his army in the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14. Daniel was delivered from the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. But the people who ultimately falsely accused him were delivered to the very lions that he was given to. While he was spared, they were devoured. Acts chapter 12, Peter was delivered from prison and yet his guards were executed. One more. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod killed James and yet King Herod stood up and exalted himself before God and he was struck by the angel of the Lord and eaten alive from within by worms. Men who have exalted themselves, who have sown wild oats of sin and yet they reap what they sow. That's a foundational principle. When we see Haman, we see the classic example of a man who falls upon his own sword. Another point I'd like us to consider in conclusion and application is this. Sometimes God delights in showing mercy to those who least deserve it. Those who should reap what they show, sow, and yet God shows mercy. I want to give you a, an account that came to my mind from missional history, from the advance of the gospel. If we were to say, Jim Elliott, that would be a name that you maybe remember uh, from the past. Elliott and Nate Saint and others who were martyred by the Aka Indians as they took the gospel to them. They were speared to death, I believe it was, was their form of death. When the Aka Indians took the lives of those five missionaries, they attempted to stamp out the foreignness, if you will, the gospel forever from among their people. But one of those men was Nate Saint, Nate's sister Rachel the sister of one of those five men, Nate Saint, Rachel would go back and live her life among those Indians, 
teaching them how to read and to write, and ultimately to share the gospel with them. The irony is evident, isn't it, that God delights in raising up those as trophies of the gospel, as trophies of grace, those who least deserve it. And so the question then comes, and I'm not trying to get, get this has been a long day, I get that, we're not going to keep going this direction, but it's important to consider, is God unjust to give the Hamans what they justly deserve? And the answer is absolutely no. Is God unjust to show mercy upon those who don't deserve it? And the answer is no. None of us deserve the mercy and grace of God. In fact, God tells us in Romans chapter 9, I will, in Exodus chapter 33 as well, I will give mercy, I will show mercy upon whom I will have mercy and show mercy to them. Well, it's interesting, the irony here in this example is that the one whose bro- brother was murdered becomes the agent of redemption for the murderers. God and the ways of Scripture works in very clear patterns, and yet, according to His sovereign grace, He reverses course and shows mercy to people who least deserve it. People like Saul, who executed, or at least enabled, the execution of one of the most godly men in the early church named Stephen, who was a preacher of righteousness, a servant of the church, full of the Spirit's power and wisdom. And yet, Stephen will be at the gates rejoicing and welcoming Saul, who became Paul, who was a trophy of God's mercy and grace. I have no doubt Stephen will be the first to welcome him home, to wrap his arms around him, and to celebrate uh, in the Lord's kindness and goodness in his life. I want to give one other practical application as well. Friends, as we look at Haman's besetting sin, you know, we all have besetting sins. All of us do. Um, Some of them are common. They're common to humans in general. But particularly as we think about Haman's besetting sin, what was his besetting sin? And I believe it to be pride. Haman loved himself. Haman worshipped himself. Haman could not think about anyone else but himself. Haman is the very antithesis of what a gospel-centered people should be like. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, you heard the teens say it this morning, where Paul gives exhortation. He says, For I say to you, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one of you the measure of faith. Don't miss that. How do we think soberly? How do we not be filled and controlled and lifted up in pride? How do we not think that we're something more than what we are? Well, just consider where you were when God saved you. Consider your status and your state when you were born again. And that's what Paul is pointing to. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. Who gave that faith to us, that saving faith? It was God himself, all of grace, all of his glory. Friends, just simply rehearse the gospel in your life and that will help you to deny yourself and to mortify the pride that creeps up within every single one of us. For Haman particularly, because he did not mortify it, it became his very undoing. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says this, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, no one, none will go unpunished. None will go unpunished. One final application I want us to look at is this. God, it's a reminder to us that God is always, as we think about this, has been Esther's moment. God is always preparing us for what he has for us. God has been working in Esther's life in so many ways, to use the phrase, for such a time as this. Mordecai calls her up to it. 
And here we see Esther realizes, maybe as she's even giving the conversation to the king, this is God's purpose and plan for me. And I want to make application. And the application is not be like Esther. It's not be a better Esther. It's not try harder, do more. I'm not, that's not my application. But there's a root principle in the way God works, and it's this. God has been preparing Esther her whole life for this moment. In fact, in our chapter, for the first time, we see Esther fully identifies with the people of God. My people. This is the first time Esther's revealed that, that she is a Jew. This is the first time she's owned the reality of who she is and God's plan and program and her ethnic background. But I can't help but wonder in the same way, some of you have struggled and your mind flips through the way the course of your life has gone and decisions that have been made. And if you could go back and, I mean, don't we all do that to some degree? We, we think, you know, if, if I had handled this this way or if I had done this or if we had just done that at that time and timing and vocational, you know, all those kinds of things. We, 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 can, we can be the personal archaeologists of our past history and background carefully in our night as we fall asleep going through and examining artifacts from our past. And friends, I just want you to know, if our, if our view is looking that way constantly, it's not helpful. We're not going to be filled with joy and seeing God's hand and all that he wants us to do. But if we see God's hand in this way, that God is sovereign. God works providentially. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, I believe it is, that he has prepared us for the good works that He has before ordained that we should fulfill, that we should walk in them. God has a plan for your life to those that He's called, redeemed, and saved. So the question we need to be asking is, what is it that God has always been preparing me for? And it could be, I know we've got an intergenerational group here tonight, but I just want you to know God's not done with you. He has a plan for you from the youngest to the oldest. Uh, it, it might be that you're in your greatest chapter yet. I don't know. I'm confident of this, though, that God is preparing you right now for what he still has in store for you. I believe that. And I think there's much practicality as we can see that Esther realizes that I've been born for such a time as this. I won't tell the story. It's not in my notes fully, but I think I've told it before. But I'll never forget reading the newspaper and reading about that soccer team, I believe it was in Thailand, who was stuck in a cave. They'd gone touring in a cave and the rocks fell. There was a they were entrapped, and it, this was maybe back in 2019, maybe 2018, 2019. Do y'all remember that story? There's like a whole team of like 20 uh, young boys. They were trapped in a cave, and it, was, it grabbed like the, the world scene, and the clock is ticking. Anytime those things happen, the clock is ticking. Can they be saved? Can they be saved? And experts immediately begin to spread the word all over the world of saying, we need everyone who is a skilled diver, everyone who's got... We're talking about world-class abilities. And if you read the, the details of that account, it is absolutely gripping. It's, it's fascinating. But as I was reading the, uh, one news account, one of the divers, who was an American diver, who was world-class, he was retired. And he said this statement. And this is where the biblical worldview informs all, right? And I, don't, I, I would love to believe that man was a Christian. He said this, I just knew when I heard the call for help, I knew my skill set. I knew my abilities, and I knew I could do what was needed. And by the way, I think all the boys, but maybe one was, or I think all the boys made it out alive. I think maybe one of the adults perished, if I remember correctly. Just, it was a miracle. 
an absolute miracle. They had to drug the boys to be able to get them through, put a mask on their head and get them through these tight spots. And these divers had to go in and basically carry them out, personally assist them in their um, being passively being swimmed out and carried out. And everyone's lives was in danger. But the guy said this, I couldn't help but believe that my whole life, all of my prep, all of my experience was for this moment. And in that moment, saying, that's what the Christian believes. That's what the Christian says. Lord, I, I don't know what you have for me today. I, I don't know what you have for me tomorrow. I don't know what's on my horizon, but I know this. You're the God who is. There is a God in heaven. You're the God who reigns on your throne. And just as you worked and raised up Esther to save much people alive, just as you raised up Joseph to save his people alive, and I get there's differences and distinguishes. I'm not trying to say we're, we're like Joseph. But I am trying to meaningfully say our God is the same God. And I know that our God has allowed you to experience and to go through the very things you have gone through for a reason that's not to be wasted. He wants you to use that for his glory and for his honor. So I believe in the same way there's much practical application as we leave tonight thinking about the hand of the Lord uh, in our lives. Lord, what is it? that you've been preparing me for, that you still have for me yet to fulfill. And I'll just tell you, each one of you have a unique ability to share the gospel. Each one of you have avenues of influence and relationships and connections and life experience that can be brought to bear. You've had certain experiences that the person to your left hasn't had and the person to your right hasn't had, but God's going to bring people across your life and you're going to see in a moment's notice that as you're there having this conversation with that man or that woman, 30 years ago, God allowed you to go through maybe a certain type of experience, both good or bad, so that you could have a voice of experience to segue into the gospel in this very moment. And it could just be that God has raised you up for such a time as this, in that moment, for the advancement of His kingdom. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word, and namely we thank you for Esther, Esther chapter 7. There is so much sober truth and warning that we see here in the life and example of Haman. But Father, we're not leaving here tonight talking about Haman or even Esther. We're talking about you, the great sovereign God who reigns. We're talking about you, O oh God, who's called us as your people, and you've called us out of our darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, we rehearse and celebrate your giftings and your kindness and your grace to us, that you have called us, that you've shown mercy to us. And yes, Lord, you've allowed us to reap and will continue to allow these spiritual and natural laws that work because these are things that you have ordained. Yet in your kindness and your grace, you also withhold much that we deserve and you raise us up for your purposes and for your glory. Father, we dare not presume upon that. Just because you have in the past doesn't mean you will continue in the future. May we walk simply. May we walk humbly with our God, Father, loving you and respecting you and worshiping you. May we look to Jesus. May we look to Christ, who is the Lord and Savior. Lord, as we pray for our people, as we look at the week ahead, we pray that you would lead and guide us this week. Much lies before us, opportunities for fellowship, opportunities for ministry, reflections and conversations with family. And Lord, we pray that you would guide it all and that you would be at the center of it all. And we'll trust you to do this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, church.